First uh, Timothy four. We're going to be in actually just the first five verses. Again, I was planning to kind of take us through the first ten or eleven, and then I got halfway through and was like, nope, got to stop unless I'm going to preach for an hour. So uh, there's a bunch here. So we'll uh, we'll do the first five verses. There's a there's enough to get get on with uh, here. But if you are um, maybe you haven't been around this whole series, most of you probably have. Uh, but First Timothy, just as a recap, is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to Timothy. That's why it's called Timothy. Um, it's written to Timothy, who's this young guy working in Ephesus uh, on Paul's, Paul's, you know, kind of sent him there to help this church in the city of Ephesus uh, fix the problems. Uh, Ephesus was full of problems, uh, as every church is full of problems. Um, I can't imagine what Paul would be writing to our church. Um, so, you know, that's just the way it goes. Every church has problems. Um, but Ephesus was in a, in a pretty bad spot at this point. Um, they had, what's clear from the letter is that they've, they've veered away from the central truth of the gospel, um, which is that God saves sinners through the sinless life, a substitutionary death and bodily resurrection of Jesus. Uh, and and we, I, I don't think we have a lot of evidence that the church in Ephesus completely abandoned Jesus altogether, but the problem is that they added on to Jesus. They, they didn't fully reject him, but they didn't accept him alone. They, they believed, as many churches in the New Testament believed, that you had to do extra things to make the grace of God stick in your life and actually make it apply to you. And, um, and so Paul in, I mean, we can go through the line, right? Romans, the Corinthian letters. Uh, we can talk about th- this letter in Ephesus, Galatia, uh, all of these churches that were just sort of veering away from the pure gospel of Jesus, that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. And that had been lost or, or replaced by other things, by false teachings. And, and that's why Paul wrote the letter, was to get Timothy to understand the, the errors of the elders in Ephesus that were leading the church the wrong way. I don't think it was all the elders. I think it was just a couple of them that he, he actually names in chapter 1, a couple of guys um, probably were leaders in the church that were primarily causing the problem. Um, but nonetheless, this church had moved away from the gospel. And so Paul writes this to help them get back to it. And, and then he is going to talk, actually, the next time, uh, the next part of chapter 4, we're actually going to see that, yeah, it's not just about right belief, it's also about right living. It's about the gospel actually changing us. And that, that's true, and that's true in all of Paul's writings as well. We, we will see right doctrine and right living go hand in hand in this letter as with most of the letters we see in the New Testament. Um, but right now we're primarily focused on right belief and right practice comes a little bit later in this chapter. Um, so he, up to this point, Paul has not actually clearly laid out what the problem with the doctrine or the belief or the theology in Ephesus was. And today we're going to actually get to see it. He's going to take us to it and really call it out for what it is. Um, so, so let me just read these five verses. They're sh- it's short. 
So I think we can read it all up front and then we'll back up and talk about it. That way we, we kind of get a sense of where we're going here. here here's what he says. Uh, now the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. Okay, so let, let's spend a little bit of time here talking uh, just kind of as introduction, because clearly what Paul's getting at here is the issue of false teaching, right? He starts by saying that the Spirit expressly says, now we don't know where the Holy Spirit expressly says this, Perhaps it was to Paul directly, perhaps it was to the church as a whole, but he knows that the Holy Spirit says that some in later times, later times meaning uh, it, whenever you read in the New Testament the word later times, it's referring to everything between Christ's ascension into heaven after the resurrection to his return. So the apostles lived in later times 2,000 years ago. We live in later times today, um, and we will continue to live in what the Bible calls later times it's this period of time between the ascension and return of Christ. And so in those times, in our time, in Paul's time, in all times until Christ returns, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to, here's the key, to deceitful spirits, the teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. So we're clearly talking about false teaching, right? That teaching of demons, liars, these things, these words that Paul is using are pretty strong uh, words, right? They're not, he's not beating around the bush. He's calling out false teaching for what it is. But let's spend a little time talking about false teaching just as we, just so we have a kind of an idea of what we're dealing with. And then we'll look specifically at what he is saying. Um, I think a lot of times when we think of false teaching, we think of blatantly, obviously wrong things. And that's true. There, are, there is some of that in the world where things are just so obviously false that we go, yeah, that's wrong. But, but most of the time in the church, at least, Satan's activity in the church and trying to deceive people is not blatant and obvious lies, but actually thrives on its subtlety. It's, it thrives on subtlety. Because if, if we were to go full bore into something wrong, all of you would have your, your consciences and your Holy Spirit-driven hearts going, yeah, that's wrong, right? Like if we were to say something ludicrous, like, well, Jesus isn't God, Satan's God, you would all leave, and you should, right? That's ridiculous, and you all know that that's not true. Um, that's not how it works most of the time. It's not this blatant, obvious um, uh, thing that's, that's clear to see. It's, it's actually more dangerous because it's not the obvious things that we're, that we're um, worried about. It's the little subtle deceptive things that we should be worried about. And, and yet even the little subtle deceptive things, Paul still refers to as the teachings of demons. 
So, so it's, a, it's a big deal. But, but here's the thing. The goal of false teaching, I think, is ultimately to make Jesus unnecessary to your Christian faith. Not to push him out completely, because that would be obviously wrong. But it's to actually say, okay, you can have your Jesus, that's fine, as long as you don't just have Jesus. You can have Jesus, but he's got to be pushed to the edges, not to the center. And that's the, that's the hard thing, is that in so many um, deceptive kind of teachings that we, that we can encounter throughout the the church world and, and on the radio and on television or wherever else we feed, see it, the, we have to be really careful on what we're taking in and receiving. We have to be discerning because if, if Jesus is there, it sounds good, but if Jesus is there and on, just on the edges, but really he's not the center, then it's still false teaching. Um, the, the real goal here is to not make Jesus the center, but to make ourselves central to the Christian faith. And, and as we do that, we push him out into the edges. We will probably never fully abandon him altogether, uh, at least in, in our words, um, but, but he can be tangibly, practically pushed out uh, because we feel like, well, we just don't need him that much. Like, yeah, it's, he's nice and good and all this stuff, but we don't really need him. And I, I think that that's where we need to recognize Paul's getting at here in this text is, and we're going to see when he pull in verse three, when he talks about what the false teaching actually is, it'll probably surprise us a little bit and go, wait, okay, that's, that's a little weird, but is that really demonic? It, it, we may not think so uh, on the surface, but to, to Paul it is because it's taking Jesus and just making him a little nice add-on to the, to the Christian faith and not the center of the Christian faith. And a um, pastor from about 50 years ago, a guy named Barnhouse, I can't remember his first name now, but um, Barnhouse was a pastor in Philadelphia. He pastored 10th Presbyterian Church, uh, which is still uh, thriving. It's still a great, great church, actually. Um, Barnhouse has been dead for a long time now, but um, he pastored this church and he also had a, a pretty prominent radio ministry in the in the 60s or so, somewhere in that time frame. Um, um, and, and in one of these broadcasts that he had, uh, he told a story. Well, he asked a question first, and he asked a hypothetical question. What, what would a city look like? And I think he said, what, did, what would Philadelphia look like if Satan truly completely took over the city and just ran it? And uh, I'll paraphrase, paraphrase the story, but I think most of us in that scenario, if we thought, okay, what would Anago look like? What would Langlade County look like if it was completely overtaken by Satan and he just had free reign? I think most of us would go, well, it's probably going to be like Gotham City, right, without Batman in it. Um, like just terrible, everything's blowing up all the time, it's just awful. Um, and I think that's where most of us think, think because of Hollywood and because of all the kind of the sensationalism of all this stuff. But Barnhouse 50 years ago made a different kind of suggestion. And again, it's a suggestion. It's not, it's a thought experiment. It's not reality. So we can, we can kind of talk about this, whether it's right or wrong. But Barnhouse's pre- kind of prediction would be that it wouldn't be like that at all. It wouldn't be this Gotham City terrible place. It would be actually a really nice, quaint little city 
that, that people like were friendly in, said, yes, ma'am, no, sir. No bars would be around. They'd all be closed down. The strip joints would be gone. And the churches, he says, here was the punchline to his whole thing. The churches would be filled every Sunday, but Christ would not be preached. And I, I think actually that is probably the goal, right? I don't think chaos is the goal. It is Christlessness that's the goal. That, that's what deceptive, demonic teaching is meant to be. It's meant to be Christless. And so I think Satan and demons are perfectly content with you believing anything about Jesus as long as it's not just Jesus. You got to have something else. You got to add more. You got to have more. You got to put things on yourself. You got to give yourself the leg up. You got to be the guy or the gal that does it for yourself. That's the danger. It's a huge danger. And in fact, multiple books of the Bible were written because of this. We should take that seriously. The whole letter of Galatians was written because of this issue. The Galatians didn't push Jesus out. They just added to it. They said, yeah, we need Jesus, but we also need to do these things. The, the Ephesians, same thing. That's why Paul wrote 1 Timothy, because they had kept Jesus in, in their verbiage, but they weren't actually centered on him. Okay, so let's, let's take a look here at the text. And um, so Paul says first in verse 1 that the Spirit expressly says that in later times some will depart from the faith. Let's talk about that phrase, depart from the faith, for a moment. Okay, it's not really centered to the point he's making, but I think we need to stop and address it. Because this phrase can raise up some, some interesting questions. Is Paul saying here that some will depart from the faith, meaning that they will lose salvation, uh, that they will actually lose this, the grace of God that, that he had given to them? Or is he saying something else? Now, I, I understand, like, if we just took this verse and pull it out of context of the whole scriptures, it might appear to be saying, oh, yeah, well, Paul's saying that people are going to lose their salvation. But I don't think that we can make that, that statement or that case from this verse um, because we know so much more from the whole of scripture that, that salvation cannot be lost once it's been given. Once it's been granted by God. Salvation is not earned, so it can't be removed. It's, it's received by faith through grace. And, and Jesus himself says that he holds us in his hand and no one can snatch us out of the Father's hand because he's holding us. Uh, the Bible clearly teaches that we cannot lose our salvation. That is an absolute clear teaching of the scripture. So then the question is, is like, okay, then what does Paul mean if that's not what he means what does he mean? What does this departing from the faith mean? Well, I think we actually get an answer by going uh, to the letter of 1 John. Um, John actually gives us the category that we're thinking about here. Look, just real quickly, 1 John chapter 2. I don't think it's up on the screen. Um, but John 2, starting in verse 9. Um, 1 John 2, 19. I'm sorry, not 9. Um, here's what he says. He says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out, 
that it might become plain that they are not of us. So, so John's talking about the same type of people, these people who have left the church, left the faith, abandoned Christ. But, but how does John define them? He actually says that they, yes, they went out from us, but that was because they were not of us. So yes, there, there is truth to the statement that some in later times will depart from the faith, but they're not departing from the faith that they actually possess. They're departing from the, the picture of the faith that they're participating in. They're, they're leaving the faith because they never had the faith to begin with. They might have gone through the motions and the, and the, the r- routines and maybe showed up to church a bunch and, and might have actually looked the part for a while, but they didn't really believe. That's what, Paul, that's what John's saying, right? John is saying, well, they left us because they weren't of us, and if they had been of us, they wouldn't have left us, right? There's this argument he's making for this. Like, people who are, are truly believers in Jesus will not fully and finally abandon the faith. Now, that's not to say that Christians won't struggle and, and go their way and be in rebellion. There absolutely is a category for that too. But, but if someone is truly a believer, they are going to come back. They're going to return like the prodigal son story that Jesus is pointing us to in, in Luke 15. This whole idea that if, you, if you're really in, if you're truly a son or daughter of Christ, yeah, you may wander, but you'll come back. Christ will draw you back. He will seek you out and he will find you like a shepherd and he'll bring you back. Um, that's true. But if people leave and are gone forever, that's not an indication that they lost their faith. It's an indication that they never truly had it. So, so I think, again, there, we, we tend to like to think in black and white and we got to recognize there's some gray in the world too. And that's one of the realities that we're seeing. So, so Paul says some of these people will depart but here's why they depart. Look at, look at where he goes. How will they depart and why will they depart? Here's, here's what he says, verse 1 still. Some will depart from the faith. Here's how. By devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Through, here's, here's how it comes about, through the insincerity of liars... So the insincerity of the liars are a reference to false teachers, false preachers, whose consciences are seared. So, so here's the reality. Some, this kind of teaching, this, this kind of Jesus plus teaching might, maybe if, if we're thinking the best of somebody, maybe they're teaching it because they think, well, we have to just kind of accommodate to people's thoughts. So let's, let's, yeah, we'll let them have a little bit of their thing. And as long as they have some Jesus, it's fine. But actually that this whole thing is backfiring because it doesn't lead people to Jesus. It leads people away from Jesus because the ultimate outcome of Jesus plus something is your salvation inherently leads you to, well, why do I need Jesus at all? If I can do it on my own, that's the, natural, that's the natural progression of this. If you, if you teach, yeah, you need Jesus, but you also need to do X, Y, Z, then eventually the X, Y, Z becomes the primary thing and the Jesus becomes less so. So then you depart from the faith. You go, why do I need Jesus? I got this. And it's really sad that the, that the church historically throughout 
a long time, has, has lost its way many times over the centuries, has lost its way. And by God's grace, he's always brought people to bring it back. Right? He's always gotten, gotten his church back. But, but there, are, uh, there are really huge problems when you start to add all these extra things onto Jesus because eventually Jesus becomes irrelevant at that point. So now let's see what the issue in Paul's day in the church in Ephesus was. Look at verse 3. What was their message? And it's kind of a strange one. It says, who forbid marriage. So these, these liars, these false teachers were forbidding marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. All right, so the, the issue that was in front of the church in Ephesus was the issue of two things. I, don't, I have no idea why the first one is a thing, but, but apparently it was where they were forbidding people from getting married. No idea where that comes from. The second one, I understand where it comes from. First one, no idea. But at some point, the, these people were going, yeah, okay, so yeah, I, they probably weren't saying you have to get divorced and like, you know, end your marriage or anything, but they were probably saying, if you can, it's better to not be married because then you can have Jesus and you can have this really special relationship with him by being you know, abstinent from, from a marriage relationship. And, and then this second thing is the requiring of abstinence from foods. That one makes sense because the Jewish dietary laws of the Old Testament were something that people really clung on to in the New Testament era uh, in the early church times, they really didn't want to just eat the bacon. They just didn't want to do it. And they, they just had to, you know. Jesus was going to stuff it down their throats if he had to. No. Um, sorry. Thanks, Crystal, for laughing at that joke. Um, so, so, so but, he's, but this abstinence from food thing was a huge problem, and Paul dealt with it over and over again because God created all things to be received with thanksgiving, the end of verse 3, right? by those who believe and know the truth. So there's, no, there's nothing that we're told to with, abstain from in order to be in, in Christ. Um, everything that God created is good. And, and yes, it can be handled badly, and yes, it can be uh, misused, of course, but in its, in its pure form, in its intended form, marriage is good, all the foods are good. Like, you don't have to withhold these things from you from yourself to be in Christ. But this is what the people in Ephesus were being taught. They were being taught to be really spiritual, to be really in Jesus, to be really a good Christian. You've got to do this and this. You've got to stop eating these foods. And you, if you can be, don't get married. And that's just really bizarre because there's nothing in the Old Testament that prohibits marriage. I don't know where that's even coming from. But... Um, probably something from the culture within them. I just don't have enough knowledge on it. So, but this is what we're seeing. So fundamentally, this is interesting uh, because this false teaching, the false teaching that Paul's addressing here is essentially saying that um, the more you give up, the more spiritual you are. The more you sacrifice in your life, the more like Jesus you are. That sounds good, doesn't it? 
Like that actually sounds like maybe what we have always been taught <laughs> in our churches. That doesn't sound, I mean, this is like, that idea is, is, it sounds good. It sounds right. But here's why this is a lie. And here's what Paul's trying to get us to see. The scriptures are showing us that this is a lie because salvation in Christ has been fully and completely offered to us without cost, without sacrifice on our part, as a gift. That's what the word grace means. The word grace means a gift. And the reason that all of this salvation has been offered to us freely and completely and fully is because Jesus sacrificed himself for your salvation. So there's nothing else you can do. There's nothing else you can add. There's nothing else that you can improve upon. The sacrifice of Christ is sufficient. The sacrifice of Christ is enough. The sacrifice of Christ on the cross for your sins and my sins is fully and completely what we need to be brought into Jesus. And so to say, well, yeah, 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 we need that thing to happen, but we've got to add all these extra sacrifices onto our own lives, you're, you're basically just twisting all this around and going, well, at the end of the day, do we really need Jesus' sacrifice if I'm the guy or I'm the person who's, who's doing this? It's a lie. And it's not, listen, I'm not, I'm not saying that there aren't things in the Christian life that you have to live within, right? Like there are expectations and callings on our lives to live in a way that honors the Lord, of course. But, but it's all about, this is why it's so hard. It's all about your motives as to why you're doing those things. Your motives are what matters to Jesus. And, and if your motivation is, like it seems to be in this text, uh, I have to do these things to make Jesus' sacrifice more applicable to my life, you've, lo- you've lost the, the plot there. You've, you've missed the point. If your motivation is, I want to give to the Lord my whole life and, and do whatever he wants from me, that is a good and noble thing. If your motivation is, because Jesus did all of this for me, I can live for him. That's a different thing, and it's a subtle thing, and it's a, it's a, it doesn't take much to twist that. And so that's why you've got to be introspective and mindful and thoughtful and prayerful and all the things as we pursue these issues. But, but don't miss the point. Like, we're going to actually get, as we get into this, this chapter later on, we're going to see that there are things that Christians are called to live like and do and behave as and all that's true. That's not, that, that's not contradictory to what we're talking about today. But what we're talking about today is foundational. That if we don't get the idea that nothing I do adds to my salvation, nothing I do can make Jesus love me more, nothing I do can make his sacrifice more applicable to my life, nothing that I do can do any of those things, then we are actually free to truly live the way Christ wants us to live. But as long as we're held down by, don't do this, don't do that, live this way, live that way, because that's how Jesus is going to make you better, or whatever else we may add to that, whatever Jesus language we try to cloak in that, 
then then you know if we're doing that then we're in, we're off off track. So let's but let's keep going here. We got a couple more verses. Um, Paul says in the end of verse three that the problem with forbidding marriage and food is because God created those things to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. But here's why. Look at the, verse four. Four. You could translate that word as because. So here's why all this matters. Because everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. So the the Jesus plus nothing approach to salvation, which is the biblical approach to salvation, tells us that there is nothing we have to sacrifice to be made whole and right with Jesus. Nothing we have to sacrifice. We get to sacrifice things as as an expression of love for him and, and all those things, but there's nothing we have to do because everything that God created is good and it's to be received, not rejected, but received with thanksgiving because it is made holy. It is, it is set apart for God's honor by his word and by prayer. And so what, he's, what Paul is essentially saying is this, is that we should receive all that God has given. The, the common things that he gives us, like food and marriage and and, and just friendships and good jobs and whatever else we may have. God gives those things to us and we should receive those things and not feel like we have to be sacrificial about those things. We can receive those good gifts, but ultimately we should receive the ultimate gift of grace, of forgiveness, of salvation offered to us in Christ. And we should receive it in two ways, with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is another way of saying open hands. Right? We should have our hands emptied and open to receive from God with, with a heart of gratitude and prayer. I think this is talking about our open hearts before the Lord, that we are in communion with him, we're speaking to him, we're, we're receiving these things with gratitude in our hearts and in our hands because all of this is affirmed in God's word. That's why Paul says that it's holy by the word of God. The word of God makes these things true, and, and so we should believe it. So again, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure where you're at, if this resonates with you or not, but I think a lot of us have, have been in situations where we've seen the Jesus plus thing being preached all the time. It's got to have Jesus, sure, because if we didn't say you needed Jesus, then everyone would run for the hills knowing that we're false teachers. So you keep Jesus in there just enough, but really it's about you. That's a problem. Can we all agree that that's a problem? Like we need to recognize what the Bible really says about salvation. And here's what it teaches us. It teaches us that it's a free gift from Jesus unearned, undeserved by us. In Paul's first letter to the church in Ephesus, the letter of the Ephesians, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, 
of this chapter, we see it. For by grace, that is the gift of God, you have been saved. It is by grace that you have been saved. It is by God's gift to you, his gift of Jesus, that you have been saved through faith. So it has to be received, right? Gifts have to be received. It's not a gift if it's not actually given to somebody. You may have purchased a gift, and if the person doesn't receive the gift, then you bring it back to Walmart, right? That's how it works. It's not a gift until someone receives it. And so faith is the part that actually God gives us the ability to, to exercise our faith too, but he graces us, he gifts us with salvation through faith, through belief. And then it says, this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. That word gift could also be translated the grace of God because gift and grace are the same Greek word. And so here he's saying, this is not your own doing. What is this? Well, it's obviously the grace that's not our own doing, but he's also talking about the faith to receive the gift is a gift from God. All of it is. Because God has to overcome all of our sinfulness to get us into himself. So the grace and the faith, it's all a gift from God. And then verse 9 says this, that this grace, this salvation, is not a result of works. It doesn't come from works. Why? So that no one may boast. Why does Jesus not let us save ourselves? Because then we would be patting ourselves on the back even if we could. Well, we can't save ourselves, so that's the first reason, right? But even if we could hypothetically save ourselves by abstaining from marriage or not eating these foods or whatever else Paul might throw out there in different things, um, following the Jewish laws or whatever, right? If we could save ourselves, which we can't, but if we could, why does God not let us? So that we don't boast. So that we can't be proud, We can't stand before him and go, you know, I actually did this for myself. Thanks, but no thanks. He dismantles all of that. He he crushes it to the ground. This is what the Bible says about salvation. It's a free gift of Jesus through his sinless life, his death in our place, his bodily resurrection from the dead, and all we have to do is receive it with thanksgiving. So, so let's just, for a couple minutes, ask the question, where does this take us? And how should this impact us? Where does the doctrine of grace alone, by faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, take us? Well, it should take us to complete dependence and love for Jesus, right? Right? That's where it should take us, to, to realize that our salvation is not of ourselves. It is of Jesus. It is from Jesus. It is by Jesus. So we have to just be dependent on him. And there's a passage that actually makes this really clear. If you go to Revelation chapter 3, don't be scared by Revelation, okay? Uh, but Revelation 3, the, ver- the first three chapters of Revelation are, are actually letters that Jesus writes to these seven churches. And these seven churches are representative. They were real churches in, in John's day. Um, they're, they're represented by the cities that they were in. 
you see a, a letter to Sardis, to Philadelphia, not our Philadelphia, the, the other one, uh, Laodicea, right? Uh, Ephesus gets a letter. We're not going to actually read Ephesus's letter, but it's interesting. But if we go to the last letter to the church in Laodicea, here's something that Jesus talks about to them. This is what this church, and again, these churches are, they were real churches, but they were re- the representative of all of our churches of all time, right? Every church throughout all of history is going to struggle in some of these ways. They, they all represent all of us. So here's the problem in the church in Laodicea. Look at verse 15. He says, Jesus is speaking here. These are his words. He says, I know your works. I know what you do. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. Um, Now, let's just step back for a minute and talk about, because I think it fleshes this out a bit. Laodicea was a very interesting city. Um, I'll talk a little bit about it in a moment. But Laodicea had very bad water. They didn't have their own water that they could drink. It was very muddy, very very minerally. It wasn't good tasting. And so the, the Romans if you know what the Romans did, they built roads and they built aqueducts. And aqueducts would transport water from one place to another. So there was a hot spring quite a ways away from Laodicea that they would transport drinking water through aqueduct to Laodicea. And it was coming from a hot spring, so the water was hot when it started out. But by the time it got to Laodicea, it was not cold and it wasn't hot. It was just kind of meh, right? Uh, And so he says... That's how your works are. They're not cold or hot. Now, cold or hot, don't, don't read cold as bad and hot as good. These are both good. Jesus says, just be hot or cold. Cold coffee is good. Hot coffee is good. Lukewarm coffee, not good, right? Cold tea, hot tea, cool. Lukewarm tea, no, not so much, right? So that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, so because you are lukewarm, you're just sort of in this middle ground. You're neither cold nor hot. I will spit you out of my mouth. He's going, ugh, you're just not, you're not what I want. But here's why. Now listen to why he says they're lukewarm. This is fascinating. Because when we think of the word lukewarm, what do we think? We think, well, somebody's not doing what I think is a, is a good Christian, so therefore I'm going to define them as lukewarm. That's, what we, that's how we've always done it. I've been called lukewarm by people because I wasn't doing what they thought I should be doing. And maybe they were right, maybe they were wrong, but... They were probably wrong. All right, so <laughs> uh, I still got a long way to go, you guys. Okay, but here's where we are. This is why they're lukewarm. Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Let's stop there. Here's why Jesus says these, this church is lukewarm, because they say, you know what? Jesus, thanks, but no thanks. We're good. We don't need your help. That's what it means to be lukewarm. To have a demeanor that says, you know what, I just don't really need him that much because I'm doing pretty good. It's interesting when you study Laodicea because Laodicea was a, a city that was struck by a massive earthquake not long before this was written. And the city had such a, so they were very Alaskan. You know, they were just like, they're just going to do their thing, man. They're going to, like, they don't need any help from anybody. 
They're just good, good, you know, hardworking people. So they literally, this city, Rome, the, the head of the empire, offered to send them money to help them rebuild their city after the earthquake, and they turned it down. And they were like, yeah, we don't need your help. We're good to go. They, they, they turned down money for, like, that they could have built their city with it because they were like, nah, we're fine. We'll do it ourselves. And unfortunately, that cultural mindset that was in that, that was prevalent in that city actually bled into the church where the church essentially said to Jesus, you know what, I, we're good. Thanks, but no thanks. So keep, keep, let's keep reading. So Jesus says this, not realizing, you say you're rich, you've prospered, you need nothing, but you're not realizing that you are actually wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Like you guys think you're all that, but you actually are completely destitute. Now, not physically, not materially, but spiritually. And so what does Jesus say to them? He says in verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich. He's speaking spiritually here. He's using analogies. He's not talking about physical riches. So that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. So Jesus says to this church, you guys think you're all that, but you actually think you're okay without me and that's bankruptcy. That's destitution. That's absolutely destructive. What you need is me. You need me to give you all that you have, all that you need so so that you can truly be righteous and truly be clothed and truly have all these things. And, And then verse 19, he says, so those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. So be zealous and repent. The, the time is to turn around, to stop thinking you're self-sufficient and come to me. And that's where he goes. Verse 20, famous verses. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. We'll stop there. But this is where... Um, this is where Jesus invites us in or invites us to open the door so that he can come in actually, right? But the idea here is this, the church of Laodicea is a representative of many of our churches and many of us as Christians. Where we feel like, hey, you know what? Yeah, yeah, I'll acknowledge that Jesus is a part of this thing, but really it's it's me. I get this thing done. I'm going to make myself righteous and holy. And Jesus turns all that on its head and says, no, you're actually pretty pathetic. You're pitiable. You're wretched. You're blind. You're naked. Like you, you, you don't even realize where you're at. And, and so he says, here's what you do. You come to me and I'm right at your door and I'm right there. I'm ready to be received. Just open the door that I might come in and I'll have, I'll have lunch with you. We'll have, we'll have food together. We'll be in fellowship but the only way to be in fellowship with Jesus is to take him and only him as our means of salvation and our hope for life. Can't add to it. You can't, 
Can't make it Jesus plus. It's got to be Jesus alone. Grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. By faith alone, did I say that one? I missed one, but there you go. So that's where we got to be. That's where we got to be. And I hope that that's where we're growing towards as a church. Let's not think we're sufficient in ourselves. And let's not think that by adding a bunch of things onto our lives that we're somehow adding to the sacrifice of Christ. We are not. It is sufficient. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you have loved us well, so well, far better than we deserve. And we pray, God, that our hearts would be drawn again into just your pure grace, your, your pure salvation, the, the very thing that you died to bring to us and rose to secure for us. And I just ask you, God, for your kindness to us as a church that we would reject anything that tries to add to that. It's not to say that we don't want to honor you, Lord. We do, but we want to honor you because you've given us new hearts. And so would you enable us by your grace to believe and, and to live as you would have us. And I pray that you would do this in your name we pray. Amen.